Well, are any of you familiar with the phrase, do not shoot the messenger? Well, that phrase refers to the habit people have of delivering those who bring bad news, though those messengers are not responsible themselves for the bad news that they deliver. Don't shoot the messenger is a way of saying, well, do not blame the one who brings bad news. It's not their fault. Well, that seems pretty self-evident to us, I think. We would all agree with the idea that the messenger is not to blame for delivering bad news. But research has shown that we really do shoot the messenger. We really do get angry at those who deliver bad news to us. Research has shown that people waiting to get on an airplane have a far greater dislike for the gate agents, you know, those people who take your boarding passes, if those gate agents deliver bad news like the flight is delayed. Now, those gate agents are not in any way responsible for the delay of the flight, but because they are the bearer of bad news, people get angry at them. You can probably think of times in your own life that you have gotten upset or or frustrated or angry at someone who has brought you some news that you did not want to hear. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. It's going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. I also have the text in your bulletin. Well, in this text today, Jesus sends out some of his own messengers, his disciples. But unlike gate agents, unlike those airline gate agents who sometimes have to deliver bad news of flight delays, well, Jesus did not send his disciples out with bad news. Quite the opposite. He sent them out with the good news of the gospel, the good news of his coming. But though Jesus sent out these disciples with good news, he warned that there would be many that they would encounter who would not receive it as good news. They would not welcome it. They would not welcome these messengers. They would, in some sense, shoot the messenger. And we're going to kill them. But they would, in some sense, shoot the messenger. They would reject the message. And they would reject these disciples. Because they ultimately rejected Jesus himself. Friends, next week we are going to be celebrating Christmas. The birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So next week, we're going to be thinking a lot about Jesus' first coming when he came down to earth. But in some ways, this week, we're placing our attention on Jesus' second coming. The day when he will return to judge the living and the dead and to rule and to reign for all eternity. As we've already said this morning, at Jesus' first coming, the angels proclaimed that Jesus' birth was good news of great joy for all people. Because Jesus is the Savior of all who would place their faith in him. But friends, the the question our text today confronts you with is, will will his second coming be good news? Will his second coming be good news for you? Will it be a day of joy? Or will it be a day of terror? Friends, the the reality is the the day of Jesus' second coming, when he returns, will only be a day of joy and good news if you have welcomed his first coming. For his second coming to be good news, you must welcome the news of his first coming by repenting and placing your faith in him. If you've accepted God's offer of peace in the gospel, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that second coming will be a day of great rejoicing. But if not, if not, it will be a day of terror because as we will see in our text, 
To reject the message of Jesus has eternal consequences. It brings everlasting judgment. But to receive it brings everlasting joy and life. Brothers and sisters, as the church, we, like the messengers that are sent out in this text, are called to proclaim the good news of Jesus' first coming. His humble birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, his justifying resurrection. We're called to proclaim those truths to the lost and dying world around us. We're to sound the warning of the day that he will return in judgment. The truth is, many will reject that message. Many will shoot the messenger. But many others will receive it with joy. Brothers and sisters, the church is sent into the harvest. It is a hard work. It is an urgent work. It is also a work of great reward. And so I have three points to help us consider this text this morning. The first is the work of the gospel. It's going to be verses 1 through 12. The second is the warning of the gospel. Verses 13 through 16. And finally, the reward of the gospel. Verses 17 through 20. So first, the, the work of the gospel in verses 1 through 12. Please follow along as I start reading in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, Go out into its streets and say, we are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. These first 12 verses reveal the instructions that Jesus gave these 72 disciples as he he sent them out as his messengers ahead of himself. Uh, Remember from our text from last week, Jesus had sent messengers ahead of himself into Samaria, where his message was rejected. In response, James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume those who had rejected Jesus. Jesus gave them something of a reality check, teaching them that following him would be hard, teaching them to, to love even those who mistreated him and rejected them. In sending out these 72 disciples here to do the same thing as those messengers in Samaria, so they're doing the same thing, he was teaching them that it was their responsibility to continue to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, even in the face of rejection. At the beginning of Luke 9, Jesus actually sent out the 12 disciples to do this, basically this exact same mission mission as he's sending the 72 out here. And so we're seeing even in in Luke chapter 10 that the mission is expanding. 
It's going from the 12 to 72. Eventually, friends, it's going to go to the whole church as the Great Commission is given by Jesus Christ to the church. And they're told to go to the ends of the earth with the good news of the gospel. Well, the, the opposition that these messengers would face is why Jesus sent them out two by two. And for one, they would be able to support and encourage one another when they're rejected. It would be nice to have a friend along. But there was another reason as well. According to Old Testament law, at least two witnesses, at least two witnesses were needed in order to establish and confirm the sin of another. Now look, God is not human. He is all-knowing. God is all-wise. His judgment would be just were he the only witness to someone's sin. And our God witnesses all sin. He is the judge of the secrets, as we just sang. But in sending out the disciples two by two, he was fully justifying the judgment that would one day fall on those who rejected his son, Jesus Christ. He was confirming their judgment. Now, even though many would reject Jesus and his messengers, he also told his disciples something very encouraging. That there was an abundant harvest. In other words, there were many who were ready to follow him. Many who were ready to place their faith in him. And Jesus could confidently say this because God is the Lord of the harvest. It is his harvest. He has supernaturally prepared the harvest. He knows who is in his harvest. Friends, before the foundation of the world, God has predestined and prepared an abundant harvest from every tribe and tongue and nation and people who will eagerly and joyfully receive the good news of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, what an encouragement that must have been to the disciples as they embarked on this mission and even as they faced rejection. Friends, the, the statement is no less true today than it was then. There is an abundant harvest prepared by God before the foundation of the world. Well, church, we do not know who is part of the harvest God has prepared. That is his work to know, not ours. So we boldly and we confidently proclaim the good news of the gospel to all. Now look, we're going to be praying that we personally have the privilege to reap a large harvest. The truth is, the harvest we may reap may only be very small. Or the harvest may be a harvest that we never see. Perhaps we are planting seeds that will one day be harvested by another. Brothers and sisters, the harvest is abundant. So go in boldness and confidence and proclaim the good news of the gospel. You serve the Lord of the harvest. Friends, Jesus not only said that the harvest was abundant, but also that the workers are few. Workers are needed to gather in the harvest. Christians are needed to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the lost and the dying world around us. We're confronted with two realities in this text. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. What are we to do in response to these two realities? What does Jesus tell us in verse 2? He said to pray that God would send out workers into his harvest. My brothers and sisters, God is the one who sends. 
none of his harvest will be left behind. We're to pray. It brings to mind those Old Testament passages that speak of the poor of the land going behind those who were gathering in most of the harvest to glean what was left over. Friends, it would be wonderful if we are those that get to collect the big harvest, but we may be the gleaners. Regardless, we can take confidence that none of God's harvest will be left behind. Praise be to God. So pray that he would save others and send them out to proclaim as well. Pray that God would send out missionaries. Friends, pray that he would raise up pastors. Pray that he would make us all, as Christians, faithful evangelists. Friends, the truth is that we are dependent on God to work. But we're to pray that he will work. And we're to go. Friends, the reason that we're dependent on God to work, that is one of the reasons that we pray for other churches and countries each week in our service. We're praying for God to raise up people to go into the harvest that are there. We're praying that he would strengthen churches to raise up other believers in Jesus Christ who will go and hopefully harvest other believers in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you should be praying for the same thing. But Christian, do not just pray that God would raise others up. Pray that God would use you. Friends, the the Great Commission is not just given to certain Christians. It's not just given to pastors. It's not just given to missionaries, but to all Christians. Brothers and sisters, it is given to you. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Church, the reality is that God has placed each and every one of you in a country where the gospel is not widely known, And it is not widely believed. He has placed you in a place where people come from all over the world, from nearly every tribe and tongue and nation, many of whom have never heard the gospel. He has sent you into the harvest. Are you working? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you praying for opportunities? Brothers and sisters, we have a Christmas service next week. Just take the simple step of inviting friends to come and hear the good news of the gospel at a time when many are are open to coming to church. Friends, look to grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ that you may be able to more effectively proclaim the good news of the gospel, both here and when one day you may return to your home country. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Brothers and sisters, this is an important work. It's an urgent work. It's a joyful work, but it is a hard work. As we see in this text, there will be much opposition to the work. I mean, how easy it is for us to persevere in jobs that are easy. And when the reward and the fruit is quick to come. And we would all start our own businesses if we knew that success would be immediate and sure. We would all eagerly share the gospel if we knew people would immediately repent and believe. But Jesus did not tell his disciples that their work would be like that. And he does not tell you that either. Friends, Jesus gave his disciples a reality check. Look at verse 3. He said that he was sending them out like lambs among wolves. Just remember the rejection that they had faced in Samaria. Friends, many of the twelve disciples, in fact, I think all of the disciples, or all those who would be apostles, except for John, 
would be martyred. Many other Christians in the early church would be killed for their faith. Jesus would be crucified. The work would be hard. There would be much opposition. And if their mission were not already hard enough, Jesus told these 72 disciples not to carry any provisions with them. Instead, they were to rely on the hospitality of others and on God's sovereign care. Now, this does not mean that churches should send out their missionaries today with no provision. It's not the pattern we see in the New Testament, and even if we look down at verse 7 in our text, Jesus says that gospel workers are deserving of their wages. It is good that they are provided for. We want to see more workers go into the harvest. We want to do what we can to see more workers go into the harvest. Brothers and sisters, it's one of the reasons we support Brother Summer and his work in Pakistan. But Jesus sent out his disciples like this for a couple of specific reasons. One, so that they learned to count the cost of following him. That's what we looked at last week, so that they would learn to count the cost, so that their faith would be built. And second, it was to test those to whom they were sent. Would they be welcomed and provided for? Would they be sent away? Friends, in order to go out with no provisions, they had to count the cost of following Jesus. They had to trust that God would provide. They had to be willing to, to face rejection, willing to have no place to lay their heads, as, as Jesus said in our text for last week. Now, friends, these 72 were showing themselves to be true disciples. Following him had to take priority over everything else, even their comfort, even their peace of mind. And we see that in verse 4, as they were not, that they were not even to greet others on the road. The task was urgent. The harvest was the priority. These disciples were counting the cost. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to count the cost in your own evangelism? Truth is that we're called not to just share the gospel when it will be easy or when it comes with, with no opposition. No, the truth is that sometimes sharing the gospel will bring opposition. But it is an urgent work because as we will see in a moment, Jesus will one day come again in judgment. A church I know many of you knew Randall, who used to be a member here, but who had to leave this country due to his own boldness in evangelism. Friends, that was not a sign that he had been unwise or that he had done anything wrong. We should expect opposition to the gospel. No, he was bold to faithfully proclaim the gospel, to urgently proclaim it. He was willing to count the cost and entrust himself into the Lord's hands. And at the end of the day, he was somewhat forced to shake off the dust of Fajera off his feet. Brothers and sisters, it is a fine thing to hope and pray that we do not face similar consequences. But Randall's example of boldness is one to follow, not to flee from. As Christians, we must be willing to count the cost. The, the second reason Jesus sent his disciples out like this was to test those to whom they were sent. It's this reason that is really at the heart of the text. Like many of your cultures, hospitality towards guests and even strangers was a, a very important part of Jewish culture. To refuse to show hospitality to a, a traveler and even a, a stranger would have been rude. 
The point Jesus was, was making is that whether or not the disciples were welcomed was a sign of whether or not they were accepting or rejecting Jesus and his message. And this is what Jesus says in verse 16. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. Now look at verses 6 and 9. The disciples were to come proclaiming a message of peace that included the fact that the kingdom of God had come near. In other words, Jesus, the king, was coming. Jesus, the king, was near. In advance of of Jesus' arrival, they were given the power to heal in order to confirm and verify the message that they were bringing. But the heart of their mission was to proclaim the message that people could have peace with God by placing their faith in Jesus Christ and following him, by submitting to Jesus, the king. Again, remember the message of the angels announcing Jesus' birth. It was a message of peace on earth. Jesus came to bring sinful humanity into peace with God. He came to reconcile man with God. He did that through his atoning death and his glorious resurrection. But in these verses, Jesus made it clear that some, though some would accept the message, there would be other peoples and towns who would reject Jesus' message of peace. And notice if the person or the town did accept the message of peace, that the disciples were to stay in that home or town. That home or town would experience the, the blessings of their ministry. And the disciples would experience the blessing of their hospitality. It even says they weren't to move from house to house. They weren't to like seek to get a better house, more provision. They were to be content with what the Lord had provided to bless the people who had welcomed them. However, if the people rejected the message and did not welcome the disciples, they were to move on. Friends, there is a lesson for that in our own evangelism. But a lesson that we should not take too far. Now, Romans chapter 3 makes it clear that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, no one seeks after God. We are not seekers after God. In our sinful flesh, none of us welcome the message of the gospel. But an evidence that the Holy Spirit may be at work in someone's life is that they are open and receptive to the gospel message. Brothers and sisters, if you encounter people like this, invest your time and your energy in them. It is also true that we do not know when or how the Holy Spirit will work. We do not know when or how the harvest will come. We do not know how much planting and watering is needed. So don't be discouraged in continuing to sow seeds in what seems like dry and barren ground. Our aim is not first and foremost ministry fruitfulness. Our aim is faithfulness to the task. Friends, Jesus closed his instructions to his disciples by telling them to wipe the dust off their feet as a testimony of judgment against the towns in which they were not welcomed. And notice in the text that the disciples were to publicly shake off the dust of their feet. They were to go into the streets. They were to publicly shake off that dust, and they were to publicly proclaim the gospel to those towns that did not welcome them. It was to be a public warning to those towns and those people that rejected their message. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, which is the warning of the gospel. 
I told you at first that that was going to be verses 13 through 16. I'm actually going to go back and start reading at verse 10. We're going to look at verses 10 through 16. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, We are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. In the United States, when a, a hurricane, what some of you might call a typhoon, when a hurricane is approaching land, the government will issue a, a hurricane warning to those who are living in the projected path of the storm. If the hurricane is severe enough, the government won't just issue a warning, they'll actually issue an evacuation order saying, you need to get out of there, actually we're telling you to get out of there for your own safety. Now, most people listen to those evacuation warnings when they come, but no matter how strong the hurricane is, it doesn't matter if it's like the most powerful one on record, there are always people who refuse to evacuate and stay behind. And it's not unusual for at least a few of those people to die when the storm hits. It seems to happen a lot. Now, if the government issued an evacuation order well in advance of that storm hitting land, if they gave people plenty of time to evacuate, well, people usually end up blaming those who chose to stay behind for their own deaths. It's not like they're angry, but it's like, well, yeah, it's kind of your fault. But if the government gave a late warning, it did not give people time enough to evacuate. Maybe the storm took a, a sudden turn, which sometimes happens. But the government ends up receiving a lot of criticism for, for not giving people a good enough warning to evacuate. In verses 10 and 11, when Jesus told his disciples to publicly wipe the dust off their feet and proclaim, know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near, he was calling them to issue a warning. They were to warn people of the coming hurricane of God's judgment. Like Ezekiel, in that passage that Kalinda just read for us, they were to act as watchmen, warning those towns and those people who rejected the message of the gospel, of the consequences of continuing in the rebellion against God. Brothers and sisters, that is what we are to do as well. It's one of the reasons that the proclamation of the gospel is so important and so urgent. It's one of the reasons that we preach it each and every week here at Emmanuel. People's lives will end. Jesus will return. Judgment is coming. We are to act something as watchmen, warning people of the day of God's coming judgment, but calling them to repentance before that day to welcome the news of Jesus' first coming, to experience everlasting joy and life in him. Friends, the gospel is a message of peace. It's how we can find peace with God. But it is also a message of judgment for those who refuse to turn from their sins and to submit to Jesus as Lord and King. As one pastor put it, at the end of the age, we will see that the Lord of peace is also the Lord of justice. Friends, when Jesus returns again, it will not be with an offer of peace, 
That is the offer of his first coming. That is the offer of Christmas. And his second coming, he will be coming to execute justice on those who have rejected that message of peace. Now, this is what Jesus was teaching here. Just look at verse 12. Sodom was a city destroyed by fire and sulfur from heaven. And Jesus said when he returned, it would be more tolerable for Sodom than for those towns who heard the message of the gospel, had a chance of welcoming Jesus, and yet rejected him. The woes that Jesus pronounced in verses 13 through 15 against Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were against towns that Jesus had already visited. Jesus had already been there. These towns had the great privilege of seeing and experiencing Jesus. He had performed signs and wonders in those towns, proving that he was the Messiah, the eternal son of the living God. He had shared the message of peace. They did not listen. They did not repent. Therefore, Jesus said that they would receive an even greater condemnation than the pagan or the non-Israelite cities of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon would face their own judgment for their own rejection of Jesus. But these cities would face even a greater judgment. Friends, if you are here and not a Christian, I just want to publicly warn you that you will one day experience God's just and righteous judgment if you do not seek his forgiveness and welcome his message of peace. You can welcome that message of peace by repenting of your sins, which means to turn away from your sins, to to give them up. And you can welcome it by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone for salvation, not your own goodness, not your own works. That is what it means to, to welcome the message of peace. Friends, maybe nobody has ever told you that before, that there is a coming day of God's judgment, and unless you repent and believe, you will face it. But if not, I want to tell you it clearly today. It is the clear teaching of God's word. Whether or not you acknowledge it, the world around you has taught you that there is a creator, God. God has revealed to you that he exists. It is clear in the things that he has made. And friends, God has more fully revealed himself in the Bible and in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is what we celebrate on Christmas, that God was revealed to us when Jesus came to earth. God himself, Jesus is God. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ came to earth to save us from our sins. He lived a perfect life that we might share in his righteousness. He died a sacrificial death that we might have forgiveness. And he rose again that we might have eternal life in him. Friend, Jesus took God's judgment on behalf of all who would turn from their sins and place their faith in him. Those who repent and believe will not face God's judgment because Jesus will have taken it for them. The reason that Christians do not worry and do not fear God's coming judgment is because Jesus has taken it for them. Friends, Jesus freely offers you peace and forgiveness if you will humble yourself and welcome him. That is the message of Christmas. That is the message of the gospel. Friends, I urge you to welcome that message. If you want to know more about that, I urge you to come talk to me, Pastor Ben, another member of the church after this service. The church, the prophet Isaiah wrote that God's word will not return to him void. It will accomplish its purposes. It will accomplish the purpose of salvation for those who are willing to listen. 
but it will be a word of judgment to those who harden their hearts and will not welcome the person, the message, and the work of Jesus Christ. And notice in verses 9 through 11 that Jesus instructed his disciples to preach the same message in both the towns that welcomed him, welcomed them, and in the towns that did not. They were not to change the message simply because some rejected it. It was the same message. They were not to change it. And brothers and sisters, neither are we. Neither is Christ church. I mean, yes, we should seek to be as ready as we can to be, to be able to give a compelling defense for the hope that we have within us. To give a, a clear and winsome presentation of the gospel. But we are simply heralds, messengers sent to proclaim the gospel message given to us by God. It's not our message that we proclaim, it is God's. And yet Jesus' teaching here makes it clear that we should expect that message to be rejected by many. I mean, how often was Jesus himself rejected during his time on earth? He was crucified. No matter how well we present the gospel, we should expect that there will be many who will not listen. But that should not deter you from sharing. Because the other truth is the harvest is abundant. Friends, those who reject the message of the gospel are not ultimately rejecting you. They're rejecting God. You're simply called to be a, a, an ambassador of the gospel, a messenger of the gospel. The results are God's work. The results are up to the Holy Spirit. The gospel will be a word of salvation to some. The harvest is abundant. It will be a word of judgment to many others. God's word will not return to him void. Friends, that brings us to the, the third and final point of the sermon, which is the reward of the gospel. Now look with me again at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Friends, amazingly, though these 72 disciples clearly experienced a lot of rejection on their mission, they experienced a lot of rejection when they went out, but they returned with great joy. Well, why? That's because they got to see God's power at work. And presumably, they cast out demons in a similar way to how Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Jesus says that they had been given authority over them. But more importantly, and more instructively for us, they had seen people rescued from the grip of Satan and transferred into the kingdom of God's Son as people responded to that message in repentance and faith. Brothers and sisters, what we see in Jesus' ministry is that the forces of darkness were being overthrown as Jesus came to earth. That is why he was casting out so many demons. His disciples were too. We were seeing that the forces of darkness were on the run, and they were defeated at the cross. We saw that in Colossians. The forces of darkness were defeated at the cross. And so, as one pastor put it, believers today bear the power of Christ over the forces of hell through the proclamation of the gospel. Believers today bear the power of Christ over the forces of hell through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, friends, in saying that, I am not arguing for some sort of deliverance or exorcism ministry. We will not be starting one of those here at the church. 
I do not believe that is what it normally looks like today to exercise Jesus' authority over the forces of darkness. It ordinarily looks like the simple proclamation of the gospel. As Pastor John MacArthur put it, evangelism is the task of rescuing people out of the clutches of Satan, ripping them, as it were, from the lap of the evil one. It is breaking into the domain of darkness. It is a rescue operation. And in order to achieve that, the powers of hell must be overthrown. Evangelism is not just convincing people by a good argument of the truth of the gospel, and thus they believe. It is not just a rational debate. It is a rescue operation into the supernatural realm of darkness. Friends, this is why it brings so much opposition. And this is why we must pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work. Friends, as the gospel is proclaimed, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, breaks the chains of darkness and gives spiritual light, transforming people, transferring people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And friends, as ambassadors of Christ, we bring this power to bear through the proclamation of the gospel. And friends, when we get to see God's power at work saving people from Satan's grip, it should be a cause of great joy for us. Oh, that should be a cause of great joy. Witnessing the salvation of others is one of the greatest rewards of gospel ministry. Brothers and sisters, we get to the privilege of seeing people as Christ church transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Jesus gives us another cause of great joy in these verses. If you are a Christian, you have been rescued from Satan's grip. Satan and his demons, though they are very real, they have no power or authority over you. When Jesus spoke of Satan's fall here in verse 18, it may have been that he was looking back at Satan's original fall. That may be what he's referring to. But most likely, what I think is he's talking about the fact that in his first coming, and at the cross ultimately, Jesus disarmed the powers of darkness and he put them to open shame. They were defeated. He was falling. But the evidence of this was that he and his disciples were like casting out demons right and left. I mean, we see that happening throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. A Christian, that means that you have nothing to fear from Satan and his forces. In verse 19, the reference to snakes and scorpions is a reference to Satan and his demons. Remember, Satan came to the garden as a snake. So Jesus was telling his disciples that Satan could inflict no harm on them. They had authority in his name over them. They were lambs sent into the midst of wolves, but they were in Jesus' hands. They were safe in his hands. A Christian, the, the same thing is, is true of you. Now, this does not mean that Satan has like no influence. It does not mean that he cannot attack. It doesn't mean he can't tempt. It doesn't mean he can't seek to deceive Christians. But it does mean we have no need to fear him since he is under the authority of Jesus Christ. And nothing, and he can do nothing, he can do nothing that God himself does not permit. And brothers and sisters, when Jesus returns again, his victory over Satan achieved at the cross will be fully realized. Satan will be cast into utter darkness for all eternity along with all those who never repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, churches and Christians who spend all their time focusing on Satan and evil spirits do not rightly understand these truths. 
Some churches spend all their time teaching people to protect their homes and their children and their possessions from Satan and demons through elaborate rituals. Brothers and sisters, Satan is not in control. God is. We should take Satan seriously, but we do not have to spend all our time, or really even much of our time, thinking about him. We do not have to perform elaborate rituals to fight off his attacks. His power has been broken by Jesus. We have the power of prayer. We have the power of the Spirit. We do not need to fear. Friends, the reward of the gospel at work in our lives is that we have been delivered from Satan's realm and that we are ultimately safe. This is where Jesus directed the attention of his disciples in verse 20. That their names were written in the book of life and there was nothing that Satan could do to erase them. Friends, when Jesus said that no harm would come to his disciples, he did not mean that no earthly harm would ever come to them. As I mentioned earlier in the sermon, all of the 12 apostles, with the exception of John, were killed for their faith. They were martyred. It it did mean, though it did not mean no earthly harm would come to them, it did mean that no earthly harm could come to them outside of God's control or his permission. It did mean that even if they were killed on earth, which, friends, let's just be honest with ourselves, that's about like the worst thing that could happen, right? Like that's the worst outcome, to be killed. It did mean that even if they were killed on earth, that their lives were ultimately secure. They had eternal life. Their names were written in the Lamb's book of life, and there was nothing that Satan could do to erase them. Friends, God's promise of protection and security is not a promise of ultimate earthly safety, but of eternal security, which is so much better. Brothers and sisters, Randall was just as safe in God's hands when he was forced to leave here as he was when he was here. And he would have been just as safe in God's hands if something worse had happened to him. His name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Friends, Jesus said that this is what we should ultimately rejoice in. It is the ultimate reward of the gospel. It is the joy of Christmas. Brothers and sisters, rejoice that your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And there is nothing... And there is no one that can erase it. Jesus does not lose any that are in his hands. And friends, this also means that our ultimate joy, our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate cause for rejoicing is not in our ministry success. Jesus said to his disciples, don't rejoice in those successes that you see. Rejoice in your salvation." Jesus told the 72 not to rejoice in the ministry success they had seen, but to rejoice in their salvation. Brothers and sisters, we are not ultimately chasing results, though we pray for them, and though we rejoice when they come. We are pursuing faithfulness to God and to the task. We proclaim the same message, whether it is accepted or rejected. Our boast is not in the seeming fruitfulness of our ministry. Our boast is in the God who worked in us, And our God who works through us to accomplish his purposes. Our only boast is in him. So as Christians, we're called to be messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, the road to faithfulness to that task will be difficult. We will face rejection. But the harvest is abundant. And Jesus has delivered us from the powers of darkness. So we can eagerly, willingly, 
and joyfully take up our cross and follow him because our names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Praise be to God. Let's pray.